Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Shu Matsuo Post, a feminist advocate and author of a memoir, I Took Her Name, which chronicles his journey as a Japanese man who took his white American wife's surname when they got married. Our conversation explores how this experience informed Shu's journey to become a feminist, the perspective his dual identity played in both revealing and shaping his views on gender and women in society, and how and why others, especially men, can benefit from and embrace feminism as a path towards authentic liberation from gender norms and towards gender equality. Welcome, Shu. Thank you, Terry, for having me. So I was really happy when you reached out, and of course now you're also a member of the Engendered Collective, and told me about your book, I Took Her Name, because by the way, the book's cover is beautiful. (laughs) And I love that this book was such, both in many ways, an easy read um, and an obvious read that I feel like everybody, especially men, should be able to access in a non-threatening way to really maybe plant the seed about thinking about issues of gender inequality. So first, thank you for writing the book. And, you know, I'd like to know what it was it that inspired you to write the book? Yeah, thank you. About the book cover, it's the designer uh, at my publisher. She she did an amazing job. So I actually had a different book cover uh, a year prior to publishing. And that was, um, that was okay. But this one is, uh, I, I love it so much more too. So thank you. Um, and thanks for having me again. I love your podcast. I've listened to several episodes and the depth of conversation that you have with your guests. It's just great. So I was curious if you would be interested in having me. So I really appreciate you responding and, um, and actually reading my book as well. So to going back to your original question of why I wrote this book. So like you said in the introduction, I was born and raised in Japan and I did study in the U.S. for my high school and university. So I was here I'm calling in from the U.S. today. I, I, I was here for about eight years. So my adolescence, a lot of my adolescence years, I spent my time here. And when I moved back to Japan as a young professional, I experienced this uh, kind of reverse culture shock. Um, I didn't know who I was because, you know, I was a majority as a male in Japan and then moved to the U.S. I felt like uh, racially I was a minority and I felt like I understood the minority groups a little bit better. And when I came back, um, I was expected to behave as a majority again as a Japanese. And um, I had a hard time with that kind of getting used to my culture, my own culture that I grew up with. So I really wanted to get out of Japan again to be a foreigner because I I thought that was easier for me. And I got an opportunity to move to Hong Kong with my employer at the time. So I did. And I actually didn't know anything about the city, uh, Hong Kong, other than the skyscrapers and my parents had been there once and and I heard stories from them. So Hong Kong, I didn't know too much about the city, 
but I immediately fell in love with the energy of the the city. It's uh, I think you're in New York, New York City. I've lived in New York City as well. A lot of people say it's New York City on steroids, and I believe it as well. And it was so much fun. I met with people from all over the world, and、um, I I feel like I found I was finding my identity, and that's when I met、uh, my life partner, now my wife. And that was like three years into our stay in in Hong Kong. And you know, at the time, I considered myself someone that I believed in gender equality. But if you ask me, are you a feminist?、Uh, I probably would have said maybe that word is too strong、um, because I didn't know what that meant. And she is a teacher, and she's an English teacher at international school, and she actually teaches about gender and language. So she was just naturally asking me some questions about my behaviors and my gestures, especially chivalrous gestures I was、um, demonstrating, and that was the first time that I kind of asked myself, "Yeah, why do I do these things?" The answer at the time was, "Well, because I read these things、uh, in the books that I read, the dating books for men, right?" But I didn't really think twice about the why behind that. So that really got me thinking about who I wanted to be, as someone that believed in gender equality. And you know, we ended up、um, being engaged, and that's when we started talking about our last names. So knowing her, I knew she wasn't going to take my name, which is which was Matsuo. Her name was Post, and we actually ended up combining our last names. So our name is now Matsuo Post. Mainly because we wanted to keep our identities, and also we wanted our children, future children, to have the same last name. So that was our choice, and that was our decision. And we did that. We got married in the U.S., and、uh, the process was very easy. We went to the city hall the day after the wedding and turned in the paperwork, and that was it. That was easy, great. And at the same time,、uh, we were actually moving to Japan. And I was away from Japan for five years、um, before returning. So, I, to be honest, I didn't know too much about the、uh, the legal procedure of changing、uh, one's name in Japan. So, I actually tried to do the same thing. I walked into the city hall and told the person that I wanted to change my name because I did that in the U.S. and the, the person said, "Sorry, you can't do that. First of all, legally, you can't have different last names as a married couple in Japan." And also, you can't combine names. You have to have the, the last name of yours or your wife's last name as a married couple. So I was like, "Wait a minute, that doesn't sound right." And like, what do people do? And that's when I found out that 94 percent of the times, the Jap-、um, Japan in Japan couples in Japan, the women end up taking the the man's name. I'm sure that that statistic is probably comparable everywhere in the world. I I, I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go back to your identity as your racial identity before we get to your gender identity. And for someone who's been immersed in American culture for so long and for such a pivotal part of your development as a、mm-hmm. teen、um, to young adult, do you not consider yourself also Asian American, even though you're technically not? I guess I'm guessing a citizen, or you are now because of your wife. I'm I'm not a citizen. I'm a I'm only a Japanese citizen. From、yeah. like a cultural identity, you, you don't consider yourself American in any way.、Uh, somewhat, but I, I'm not. I wouldn't consider myself a Japanese American. 
So when you, you know, when you came, did you feel that your experience those eight years in the U.S. actually was pivotal in shaping your openness to having this conversation at all? Because if someone who was born and raised in Japan and never had an inter- any international experience ended up meeting a white American woman, and that white American fiance said, I don't want to take your last name, do you think that your, your reaction was attributed potentially to your experience as a young teenager? Um, I think yes. Yeah, in, to a certain extent, yes. Because, you know, that... Coming to the U.S. and um, having that experience of this, you know, with uh, different racial groups and and being a minority myself, definitely opened my eyes to other perspectives. Where in Japan, I didn't, I definitely didn't have that. Everyone thought the same. Everyone looked the same, and that was my reality. And I didn't question any of it. So, yeah. So, what was your family's reaction or your community's? reaction when you shared with them this decision that you and your wife were making about combining your names? Did they embrace it or did they challenge it? For the most part, em- embrace the former. So luckily, even though my parents are very Japanese in terms of, you know, they, they've never lived abroad. You know, they've only lived in Japan and they do have some friends and my dad has work experience abroad as well. They, they have very open minds, which I really appreciate. And we have a very open communication between us. So I've been pretty open about what, I, what I'm thinking. And, and obviously, when, when I started dating uh, my wife now, um, I told them about her. Uh, she's, she believes in this. And, like, and uh, we dated for two years before we got engaged. So I think they understood pretty well what we wanted to do. Um, so it wasn't that much of a shock to them. So that was good. And her parents were very also uh, understanding um, as, as, as well. And uh, in terms of my community, my close friends, you know, I've been pretty open about my experience and they were very supportive. And uh, other friends that I don't get to talk too often or my colleagues, they, uh, they just kind of question, they look at my name and like, hey, what does this post mean? You know, are you, are you Japanese or, you know, are you half, <laughs> you know, uh, what, can you explain what that means? So I'm, I get asked that question a lot. So I'm having to explain to them, but I don't think there are, I'd never really felt that they are like, why do you, why are you doing that? Like, that's wrong. Like you should, you're a man, like you should be this way. Maybe they, some people are thinking that way, but I haven't really heard about that. So what, when you get questions, I mean, it must be, I don't know how often you get these questions where people are inquiring into the nature of your last name, but how do you feel about it? Is it annoying? Do you get tired? Do you, do you wonder like, why is it, why do they, should, should they even care? <laughs> yeah, that's one of the reasons why I decided to write my book as well. Um, now I look at it as an educational opportunity because most people don't realize that it's usually the, the wife who takes the, the man's name, especially if you're a man. I think the statistics make sense, but you don't think twice about it. I didn't, certainly, when, um, until I went through that name-changing process because um, it, it's so time-consuming, right? You have to change your uh, passport and all that stuff. And I just felt like it was not right to expect one group of sex to go through that experience only because they're women. 
and it should be a choice-based decision for couples. So that's kind of like my opportunity to explain that. Like, hey, I, I did it and I think more men should do it if they are open to it. And, and at the same time, it's okay for couples to not change their names or change their names or do whatever they want to do. So that's, that's kind of like my point. For, when you first had the discussion with your wife and she wasn't interested in changing her name, did that at all have anything to do with the fact that your last name reveals an ethnic identity and she didn't want, for racial reasons, to lose white privilege, in other words? No, um, I don't think so. Because she actually did end up taking part of my, my name, right? We combined it. So no, that, that wasn't the reason. It, the main reason was that she really liked her name. She really likes her you know, birth name, and she didn't have to feel like she had to uh, just take my name, replace it with my name. So it was more about the identity. And you wrote about in your book, um, it was so it's so funny to me that you, you gave an exact date of when your journey to feminism began, right? It was on your date mm-hmm. with your wife and having that conversation about language and gender. And so I was wondering, so prior to that conversation, what was your perspective? Did you think about it? Because later on, you, you talk about and you provide some thorough analysis about gender being embedded in the Japanese language. And so was that something that you had latently kind of absorbed, but didn't really form an opinion on? Or you only started to think about it after your wife had come into your life? I only started to think about it um, after meeting my wife, actually. And it's not that I wanted to go be against feminism or gender equality or anything. I think if you ask anybody right now, men, women, like if you believe in gender equality, I think most people say, of of course, yes, it's 2020. But do you believe in feminism? That's a different question. But to me now, I have a clear understanding that it's they're the same, same meaning. And that gave me the opportunity to learn more about why feminism has such a like a negative stigma in today's society and what men can do about that. When you were saying most people would agree, of course, I was going to challenge you because as then you stated, it is mostly performative. If people don't recognize that gender equality can only be achieved through a feminist framework of interrogating power, then they don't want to actually challenge the existing power structures, and they actually are not in support of gender equality. And so I think that, I think it's really telling that so many people in our society right now, especially during COVID, right? Like it's been eight months and there's countless number of articles that have appeared about the disproportionate impact of -hmm. COVID on women. (laughs) And yet to me, what's been so frustrating is that there's not been this rise in consciousness by both men and women, especially women, of how we are not equal, how we don't have equal rights, and that not everybody has the mindset of supporting gender equality, and that we need to do something more to activate ourselves and others. And so what has been your impression? You've been living in, you know, for part of this COVID lockdown in the US, to how US society has responded to gender during COVID? And are you surprised that there's not as much that should have been done, could have been done? Um, I think I don't have uh, all the statistics to, I don't know, answer this question, but I've also read that in Japan, the suicide rate 
between men and women, it's usually by far uh, done by men in Japan. I think all over the world, but especially in Japan. But due to COVID, more, way more women have been committing than pre-COVID. And the reason is because uh, the people that are losing jobs in Japan, it, uh, they're mo- mostly uh, part-time workers. And part-time workers in Japan don't get the benefits, like uh, health benefits and all, the, all those things. And most of those part-time workers are women. So they don't, they're, they're not getting the, the, the benefits that they need or care, healthcare that they need. And, you know, they, uh, many of them become depressed and um, some of them actually commit suicide. So that's something I read. So I don't think it's uh, just a U.S. issue. Um, we're definitely seeing that in Japan. But to your point, I think the idea of gender equality is uh, within many of us but like what that actually looks like what that means is something that I I think we need to be educated and that's something that I didn't know until you know I started to do more learning uh, for myself and so let's let's go there what what are the benefits of achieving gender equality for men what are benefits so it's a gender you know, getting out of the gender norms. So patriarchy has created the system that benefits men, right? So like economically, socially, politically. So if you look at, you know, world leaders, it's, it's been men all over the world. Uh, US, it's always been men. Japan, same thing for prime ministers. Uh, so men are in power. And at the same time, um, I think once, when we're born as male, the men, the society kind of puts the pressure on men, boys to be, have power, be dominant, be aggressive, win at all costs, never lose, right? Don't show your emotions. You know, some of those qualities can be beautiful and good things, but at the same time, if you just focus on those qualities, that can be very, very stressful for anybody. It doesn't have to be a man. And uh, I feel like uh, a lot of boys are kind of stuck in that gender norms and they don't, have the opportunity to explore the other side or outside of that, the manhood, the men box, you might say. So like I said earlier before, because of this, more men commit suicide than men, uh, women all over the world. I think it's like three or four times more. And so patriarchy is literally killing men too. Um, obviously, it's killing women with domestic violence and all, you know, all those violence too. So it's, uh, it's bad either way. It's bad for it's very negative and harmful to both women and men. And when we achieve true equality, I feel like more men can feel free to explore the other side of the gender spectrum per se. So, you know, some men wanna, might want to do express their more em- emotions more freely. And some men might be in position to support women to achieve their career ambitions. And that's totally okay with that. So I think it gives men more options to express themselves freely. You know, just if I may paraphrase what you just said, which by the way is to feminists, you know, and and for me, having read the book, I think like so obvious, right? Because this is literally our lens for understanding the world. If only there's equality, then everybody can be free to assert uh, agency and choice, as you said in the book. 
And that leads to whole personhood that doesn't lead to suppressing a part of us because of the gender binary and gender norms. And we're therefore able to self-actualize. And self-actualization leads to fulfillment and happiness and deeper connections. And so all of us benefit. But really the calculation that I guess society and under patriarchy men in particular do around winning, they're not really taking into account all of the other variables that come into play and what the cost is or the opportunity cost for them to play that game and maintain power. Would you say that that's an accurate kind of <laughs> summary of what, you're, what you just said? Yeah, yeah, totally. So this is between you and I, we get it. So why is it so hard to convince other men? So for example, with regard to connection, you state at the end of the book, so achieving equality isn't the goal, right? That you're, the goal in life is really for us to all as humans be connected to one another in love. And mm-hmm. if this is, this sort of these gender norms, patriarchy sets us up to be disconnected, not just from ourselves, but from one another, why aren't more men open to exploring feminism? I think it goes back to the the gender binary or the pressure, the societal pressure to be different. You know, when you identify yourself as male or when society tells you that you're male, like you have this uh, bubble of manhood, that manhood is supposed to be a certain way and womanhood as well, right? And there is no other options, but if you, well, they are, but if you choose those options that are not normal, quote unquote, um, people my challenge you look at you very differently and it's it's not comfortable it's uh and i think a lot of people feel comfortable just not doing that you know i i don't want to challenge that status quo it's working out just okay for me and i don't want to work extra hard to achieve that freedom per se i think that's one of the reasons and two i think most men just don't think about this kind of stuff. Like I didn't know. And my wife, my life was okay. I thought it was okay, right? But I just got to see a different perspective. And that really gave me the courage to do different things and think differently. And, you know, that I truly believe that gave me the freedom that I didn't have before. You talked about how the Japanese language has patriarchy built in where male characters literally come before female characters. And so I'm wondering, not knowing anything about like pictograph languages and their origins, but if the language has built in this hierarchy of dominance, how can equality change unless you also change the language? Is that possible or desirable even? Like you getting rid of, like replacing the male and female character with a gender neutral character, in other words, or radical? Yeah, I, I do think it's possible. So the beautiful thing about the languages, and you know, I can speak about the Japanese language, is that there are many options to describe things. So especially like gendered pronouns and um, husbands and wives. So in, in my book, I talk about how how to refer husband, someone's husband. And there are so many ways. And one of the most common ways to, is to say shujin. And shu uh, means main and jin means person. So which means master. So if you look at it, those are Chinese characters and uh, it means the master of the household. 
you know, if you continue to use that kind of word, um, you're referring to your husband as the master of the household. But, you know, you can use that word for your wife. So it has to be used for husband or men,、uh, which I don't agree with, right? But there's another, other ways to call your husband more gender neutral or power neutral way. And if you, I think if, you know, in Japan, if you, If we educate each other to use those words and the why, you know, teach others the reason behind it, I think that's the way to dismantle those、uh, patriarchal uses of Japanese language. It's not easy, but it's doable. So let me just get that straight. So, that, what was the word that you said that was master or partner? Shujin. Okay. You're saying in the language itself, or culturally rather, it's not appropriate to use it for. For your wife, but if both parties, both the husband and wife, use it re- referring to one another, isn't that sort of a way to challenge it? Like they're equally masters of the relationship, they're co co partners. Yeah, that could definitely be、um, another way to do that. Yeah. And then you also, there was a, a phrase, is it suma for, for wife? Suma. And then, suma, yeah. And then later on, you said life partner is tsurei. How do you say it? Tsureai. Tsureai. And so you chose the life partner instead of the wife word to refer to your wife.、Mm-hmm. But if that word existed, like life partner, why does it exist if there's this reinforcement of gender binaries? Is that meant for same sex partners? And then you're, tr- you're choosing to use it in a heterosexual relationship? No, it's, it's more for. It kind of implies that it's,、uh, the relationship is more like a friendship, you know, if you say tsureai. Yeah. And partner is more of a, like an English word, right? And, but you can use that in, as, a Japanese,、um, as a Japanese word as well. I see. So if you use that word, do people understand or do they think that you have an, a platonic relationship if you don't reference your wife as your wife? Yeah. If, if you don't explain it deeper,、um, I think most, m- most people would think that. We have a, like a friendship instead of a romantic relationship. So, okay. So, so these are like basically possibilities within the language where you can take words that exist and use them in a different context to challenge the meanings, I guess. And, and when you use them, how have people responded? Well, I guess your own network probably is very used to it by now. But what about people who are strangers who've you know, come to conversations? Without any background, do they, do they seem surprised? Do they challenge it?、Um, they don't challenge it. They just get more curious. So if I say, like, hey, my partner and I, they don't have the information if my partner is a male or, you know, are, are we married or just、uh, started to date or, you know, things like that. So I kind of, you know, usually look at their face and, like, okay, this person needs more explanation and I, I might give out more information. Or they might ask. So that kind of opens up,、uh, again, opportunity to kind of share and why I use that word. So, since you've had now this for many years, I guess it's nine years now, your journey into feminism, you also refer to this concept that people who are exposed to、um, new ideas, you know, they start seeing it everywhere. What was the phrase that was? What was that called? Do you remember? So it's called the Bader Meinhof phenomenon. Okay, so the Bader Meinhof phenomenon. What were some of the things that, when you first started off on this, embarked on this journey, that you noticed that surprised you? The first thing was the language, the, the pronouns in the language. And, 
yeah, I started to make a change and it's a practice because I've been, I had been speaking that way for how many years, like 20 something years. Right. So it was, um, it took me a lot, to, a lot of energy and consciousness to kind of go against my like unconscious habit. Uh, the other thing was, for example, like trains in Japan. So I explained this book in the earlier part of my book um, as well. In Japan, there are women only cars because of the, their molestation, uh, assault, um, sexual assaults happening on train cars. Um, so before COVID, train cars are usually really, really packed. And you can't like, it's so packed that you can't move. I, th I think most, um, I don't know if you've seen those YouTube videos of Japanese trains, like during rush hours. That, that was what and it was like for me in high school. <laughs> in yeah, New York yeah. City. <laughs> yeah. So that's a real life every single day, you know, during rush hours and sometimes um, outside of rush hours too. And, um, you know, men assaulting, sexually assaulting women have become such a major issue that the company, um, train companies started to create women only cars for usually for certain times. So those during rush hours, but some cities, they do it throughout the day. And I used to think that was, you know, kind of like, why don't we have male only cars? And like, that's not fair, blah, blah, blah. But if you think about it, like, you know, most cars are just male only cars anyway. So what's the point of making male only cars? But I realized that, you know, those companies, had to do, decided to do it to provide safe space for women, they really shouldn't. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of thing. Like I didn't really think twice about it uh, when I was growing up, but now it's like, well, it shouldn't exist, right? Because women should feel safe regardless of whether they're in the car with men or not. And these cars still exist right now? It's not a past phenomenon. No, they, they still exist. Throughout the whole country? Uh, major cities where like rush hours, yeah, get really crowded. So to me, like on the one hand, it sounded like a positive development because like you said, it provided safety, physical harbor from risk or danger. On the other hand, it doesn't really address accountability at all. So the male behavior or tendency or desire to want to grope isn't addressed. So I'm guessing there's no education around it. There's nobody, if someone is doing it, if the woman goes into a co-ed car, there's not reporting of it or arrest or convictions. Is that right? What, what's the consequence if, if it actually does happen? Well, nowadays, if it actually does happen and if, you know, if someone gets caught, that's a, there's a severe consequence to the offender, the groper. Like, what do they, they get fined? Do they get to go to jail? Oh, they go to get, yeah, they go to jail. And there was a movie about this young man who claimed that he didn't grope uh, this woman, but he was, he was actually accused of, you know, groping that woman. And, and that became a national sensation. He actually went to jail for, I think, many years. Really? For groping? Yeah. For groping, yeah. And he couldn't prove that he was innocent. And that was, I actually put that in my book as well. And uh, I, I remember when that movie came out, like all the, I was a middle school student and I was terrified. Like, oh, what if, what if this happened to me? And, you know, a lot of parents with boys were terrified as well. Like, just be careful. But it's, it's something that girls and, you know, women have been going through for so many years. And I didn't think that deeply then. And now I know it's like, well, yeah, there, there needs to be accountability and education for boys and men. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you um, when I was go go going to high school and taking the subway 
groping was so common because it was literally like in Japan, you know, everybody's squished together like sardines. And when you're in middle school uh, or high school, it's happening. Sometimes, you know, there's that doubt, like, is this really happening? And what do I do if I just do or say anything? There's nowhere for me to hide. You know, what if he retaliates? And so I, I really like the fact that you talked about the concept of victim blaming in Japan and the, the role of shame, which and, and how it played into forming that masculine identity in Japanese men. So can you talk about that? And how do you think it differs um, masculinity and shame comparing Japanese and American men? That's a good question. I think in in America, masculinity is very polarized. So like, you know, the, people like to use the term hyper-masculinity. So it's, it's about being super athletic, you know, muscular, dominant. Those, if you see those, you know, athletes or actors or those uh, ads that our male actors are in, you know, they usually are, you know, tall, muscular, very confident and you know what I mean? Like very masculine, hyper-masculine um, traditionally. But if you look at like Asian men, so for example, um, I think BTS, the boy band from Korea, um, has won the Entertainment of the Year, the Time Magazine this year. And they're traditionally from the American or Western uh, cultural standpoint, they're more feminine, right? They, they don't have the body that most hyper-masculine men in, in the U.S. have, but they're still considered like masculine in their culture. So I think the, the concepts are a little bit different. I think Asian men, because of that, Asian men in America are considered most feminine or sometimes weak. I definitely felt that way, but it's a little bit different in, in, uh, in Asia or especially in Japan uh, where I grew up. But the concept of, you know, patriarchy, like the men are better than superior to women, you know, that still exists in a different form. Talking about BTS, they're, you know, I'm not a fan, but I, I uh, of the music, but I think without any really uh, real data, my hypothesis as to why they're so popular is because at this moment in time, there's so much pushback against gender norms. And the fact that they are gender fluid represents as a metaphor for like freedom, for self-expression. And, and you know, you see this with Harry Styles too, right? Like his pushing gender boundaries when it comes to his recent award ceremony, you know, dress. But you have to have, I guess, power first before you can do that. But if you're like just an average person pushing, you know, pushing against patriarchy, then it won't be as influential. And so I, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts with regard to what the average person, you know, who is the average boy, tween, man, who is immersed in masculine culture, whether in Japan or the U.S., uh, who wants to belong, how can they tap into a sense of agency and not be harmed by rejection, by ostracization, and things that might push them to want to actually conform and not challenge the status quo and pursue who they want to be? I mean, for those people that are not conforming, I think that's great. And, uh, you know, it's best to find a community to support, support them as well. I, I think it's the, it's the media that has a really um, huge influence on 
the the people every, all over the world, right? And especially in Japan, I remember growing up, like if you're not conforming, you know, you're something often made fun of. And uh, there is um, this group called the winning team and uh, this group called losing team. So winning team, you know, you have a great job, you know, high paying job, you have nice car, you have a nice car, you have a nice house and you have a beautiful family and all, the, all those things that, you know, society tells you that you're supposed to have by a certain age or whatever. And everyone's kind of uh, striving to get, you know, all those things, right? Where in the, the losing team, they call it, they don't have those things. So it's, it's tough. You know, if you, you feel like you're, you're not competent or you're not enough if you don't have those things. And, you know, if you consume all that media all the time, you know, you just feel like you don't belong to that community. So I think the messaging really needs to change in, from media and also the people of power that media like to chase, you know, they, they, I think it's important for them to advocate equality and dismantling the, the patriarchal ideas and also gender norms that, hey, it's, it's okay to be who you want to be. You know, you have the choice and society should really support each individual for who they want to be. The media is supported by very long-established, male-identified industries, one of which is the sports industry. And athleticism, let's just talk about the U.S., like athleticism here is about strength and speed and all these other things that may not be the case in other cultures. And it's really about, you know, dominance, like football, American football is about being physically violent and, and pushing, literally pushing people out of the way or hitting people, you know, out of the way. And so I'm wondering, when you were talking about the, the boy who wants to reject the status quo, who wants to belong, you said they could find community and one of the communities that I think they don't consider enough of is girls and f feminists. And so they might not find community with other boys <laughs> because there's pressure to not be, you know, who they are. So have you, when you were growing up, did you have friendships with girls um, where girls potentially, you know, whether in Japan or here, challenged you not necessarily about gender, but just about anything in general? And, and what was that like in terms of your platonic female relationships? Actually, growing up in Japan, I didn't have female friendship. Uh, I, I couldn't make friends with girls, to be honest. I, I have an older brother, and most of my family members are male. Um, so I didn't know how to behave around girls, to be honest with you. And there are some girls that I was interested in, but I was so scared to talk to them or make friends with them. And that carried on till, you know, late teens and early twenties, actually, to be honest with you. And now I have, you know, female friends that I don't obviously see them as like romantic interests or anything like that. And I completely, it's such an important part of uh, connection. You know, I used to think that you know, boys and girls can't be friends. Like they can only uh, be in relate like a romantic relationships. But you know, it's totally not true. I don't. I don't believe that's true. And boys should have female friends. You know, girls should have male friends that are not boyfriends or girlfriends. And that's how you learn about the other sex and other gender. So I think it's a uh, if 
you know, if I knew what I knew, you know, <laughs> growing up, I wish I had more, you know, female friends. So I could have learned a lot more from them. What about male friends? Were there in the US, there's the stereotype in high school, there's the trope of the the football player, the drama kid. <laughs> and it's almost this dichotomy, like glee, right? You're either mm-hmm. a football player or you're in drama um, and you can't be both. And that kind of was challenged, at least in that, sh- in that um, series. So are there similar stereotypical kind of divisions and groups in Japan where the drama, artistic, more creative person or musical you know, person, boy, uh, male, that they are going to be more open to being sensitive and being able to develop and nurture intimacy with other males in a platonic heterosexual friendship? Does that exist? Or is there a similar level of kind of resistance as you, as you see here and elsewhere? Yeah, uh, there is, but not as much as the U.S., definitely. I had a friend who was a performer, a mu- musical performer, and I was good friends with him. And he ended up being uh, like a national level performer now. And he was, he's, he has always been that way. And he had, all, he was different from, you know, those athletes, uh, boys, but he had respect from others, I felt like. Wherein, if um, if I saw the same thing in the U.S., um, he might have been mocked maybe by those athletes more. And you know, I'm I consider myself an athlete as well. I love sports. You know, uh, I played a lot of sports, but also I love uh, playing music as well. I play the piano, typical like Asian of me, <laughs> but I stuck with it, uh, playing piano. So I definitely appreciate different aspects of like athleticism and also the uh, the musical the music as well and i i've seen you know friends that are like that as in my circle of friends who who do both or different different things not just sports or not just music in those friendships is there a consciousness around or attention around having to choose like if you were to have a party birthday party would you feel comfortable inviting your athlete friends versus your musical creative type friends and having them interact? Or would you feel like, oh, they're not going to get along? And I mean, do you have that, those kinds of internal dialogues? Um, yeah, if you ask me now, I don't think I would. But, you know, if I was in, you know, if you ask me when I was in high school or college, I definitely would have. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of plays into all of these myths around what limits people can be or so beyond the gender binary that we've been talking about is the definition of who can be harmed and how can they be harmed so you talked about you know the me too movement in japan and definition of rape how it's it's very limited to there's no concept of it happening outside of a stranger you know being the person who's the perpetrator or potentially outside of alcohol like if if alcohol is involved, then there's no um, guilt. I, I was wondering, because it wasn't clear in your description of that, is there a concept of male victims? Like, is rape a gendered thing that where only women can be raped? From my interpretation and my experience living in Japan, I think most people think, and it also it shows up in the Japanese language as well, that uh, women only women can be raped. Okay. 
I think there is more conversation about like, wait a minute, like men can be raped too, obviously. So at the time when I was growing up, I, I think there was only the idea of women being like uh, raped. Well, I mean, it, you know, certainly, I mean, in the U.S., there's so many controversies around the Boy Scouts, Boy Scouts the Catholic yeah. Church, you know, mm-hmm. which is international. <laughs> uh, and so boys obviously have been the target. But one of the things that I I think a lot of people struggle with is they use the gender of the victim as a way to degender the act itself. So if boys and girls, if men and women can be quote unquote raped, then it's like an equal thing. And in fact, it's actually not because if you look at the gender of the perpetrator, for the most part, men are perpetrating mm-hmm. these crimes mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. all everybody. Yeah. And so what is the perspective that Japan has today on rape. It wasn't clear to me when you were talking about the Shiori Ito story from three years ago, if that was a perspective from then or even now it still carries forward. Um, I think a lot of it still carries forward, but with the Me Too movement. So it came to, I feel like it came to Japan a lot later than it spread out um, all over the world a couple of years ago. But people are talking more about sexual abuse in Japan. It is still taboo, but it's more, people are a lot more open to having those conversations. And, uh, you know, I, I really think it needs to be a topic that needs to be talked about in school at a younger age and also at home. Cause I, you know, that's some, something that I want to do with my own child, but yeah, uh, it's starting to happen in Japan, those conversations. What's the influence of creating that shift? Is it because it's happening elsewhere in the world, like in the U.S., or is it because women in Japan are starting to develop a consciousness that we're not taking it anymore? I don't know. What what are some of what would you attribute it to? I think it's the latter. You know, more women are starting to speak up. You know, they're obviously like it's not that it started to happen recently it's been happening you know for centuries but more women are starting to speak up shiori ito is one of the courageous ones that really spoke up and i think um, a lot more women who are survivors started to get the you know courage from her and then speak up and i've actually worked with um, an organization it's called uh, voice up japan and they uh, feature stories you know such stories from survivors and really amplify their messages so that, you know, you can reach to the mass audience as well. And they actually did a feature on me, but they, they work with um, those survivors to share the stories. Yeah. Has these, the greater frequency of these conversations, the increased depth of these conversations shifted the mindset of men in these relationships? Have you seen it to be disruptive to marriages um, anecdotally or you know, statistically, I don't know if you have any information about how it's impacted the sanctity of you know, the traditional uh, marriage. Mm, I do not have statistics, but um, I think more couples, heterosexual couples are having those conversations, I would assume. And it's uh, you see more in the news as well. And, uh, you know, some men are feeling like they're victims, but like I, I think it's a good opportunity for for men to really look at what's causing this and uh, you know go deeper into you know this topic of sexual abuse and violence and 
you know, I think it all ties back to patriarchy, to be honest with you. But I think more people started to have, you know, started to have those conversations. Yeah, because when I was reading your book, it, you know, the closest analogy that I have is I had interviewed journalist Lita Hong Fincher about her books around Chinese feminist and, you know, the concept that leftover women after a certain age, if you're not married, you're not valued. Mm-hmm. Not just metaphorically valued, but you don't have value in terms of agency, um, and and so that learning more about that and having met some of the activists, it's interesting because a lot of them actually the ones that are that I've met uh, tend to be queer, and so they in some ways it's easier to reject a heterosexual relationship behind the scenes because they weren't going to pursue that anyway. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's not like they're challenging within the confines of a heterosexual relationship. They just are rejecting it all together. But, you know, I, it just made me think about the women in China because so many of them are leaving or using their wealth and agency to like adopt on their own and rejecting marriage altogether because of how confining it can be. And I'm wondering, is that something that Japanese women even have the choice to do? Like, is there an economic structure where, you know, where they, they, can, they can pursue life outside of marriage and still be okay? Yeah, I think for some women, definitely, especially more educated they are, I think the chances are higher. And statistically, um, from my research, I know that more people are not getting married in Japan you know, due to many factors, but I think that could be one of them. And also the identity piece, like, you know, Japan having the law that married couples have to have the same last name. Um, a lot of, uh, especially women are started to think like, I don't want to change my name. Why then I don't want to get married. I'm going to be okay myself. I'm independent. You know, I can take care of myself. And I think a lot more women um, started to feel that way. And, um, and I, I know a few of them as well. So I started to see kind of like a community growing, that kind of community growing um, in Japan too. What are the laws in Japan with regard to adoption? Like, is it legal for a woman to freeze her embryos? Are there sperm banks? Can they have a child on their own or adopt as a single woman? Sorry, I don't have too much information on this. I believe so. Um, This is something I need to fact check. That's fine, because I know that from China, they're not allowed to. And then subsequently, right. they're like all over the world as a single woman. There used to be a lot of, in the 80s, single women from the U.S. who went to China to adopt babies. And now mm-hmm. China, you know, forbids adoption by single women. Wow. What about single men? Nobody's single. You have to be in a, in a heterosexual couple to oh. be able to adopt. Yeah. Oh, wow. But the ones who were most interested back in the 80s were women. So where are you now in your journey of feminism? What are you doing actively to become a better advocate? Because you, you use the term specifically advocate. So how are you moving from advocate to activist? Yes. So I th- I, I'm just an ordinary man. I consider myself pretty ordinary. But I did want to share this message that I got to experience, um, you know, just statis- statistically speaking, not that many men have changed their names in Japan and especially like combining a name with a foreigner. So that was uh, something that I got to do. And I experienced 
this gender inequal experience that I didn't think I was going to experience. So I wanted to share that. So I wrote a book and um, just published it in December 1st, uh, on December 1st in 2020. And I wrote this in English because I wanted, I wanted more men around the world to read it. Um, just, I, I'm sure there are many men like me um, who didn't know that how gender inequal this world is. So just to bring awareness to this topic. So that's what I am at right now. And I actually have started to speak at schools. So I've done a speaking engagement at an elementary school in Japan, middle school, uh, sorry, excuse me, high school in Japan, and also a university in Japan. And that's where I want to do what, what I want to do more of. I want to help educate students, especially in Japan, but I would do it um, around the world because they're, they're the hope. They're the ones that are going to be changing the world for themselves and for their offspring. And I feel like that's my best bet to educate, obviously, my community, but more importantly, the next generation. So hopefully that's going to help change the system, the laws, because, you know, that has to change. The, it, the culture is so important. And the change in the culture is going to lead to changing the system, changing the laws. And that's the, I, I believe, the final, the most impactful destination of um, my work. So that's my next step. So this brings us to the end of our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions I call the Engendered Questionnaire. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Uh, what is at stake? I think humanity. I, th I think equality is the, the base of true connection and love for one another. And, uh, you know, dismantling patriarchy is, uh, I think, a huge, huge part of it. What gives you hope? Uh, younger generations. And final question. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? We can do more of questioning, confronting gender norms in our everyday life. So listing out what we see in our daily lives and just asking ourselves why they exist. I think that's something that we can do more of, less of stereotyping and judging people that are not conforming or just other opinions in general. Start, think start an uncomfortable conversation with others. Yeah, your close friends, family, um, and even strangers. Well, thank you very much, Shu, for being on our show. It was a pleasure speaking with you and I wish you the best with the book and please keep in touch. Absolutely, thank you so much for your time and having me on your show, Terry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.